mean, Mark is so weird. Uh, if you didn't know, when you first read through Mark, because you and I together are, you know, more erudite than we think, a bit prideful, you, you might be prone to think, oh, sweet, blessed Mark, he tried. Now time to go to Matthew or Luke. But actually, Mark is giving us once again a master class in three seemingly unconnected stories that show us one beautifully connected thing, and that is that you can trust Jesus for your needs. Because as John 6 makes clear, he is the bread of life. And yet I miss, I admit, this was a bit of a hard one this week. I mean, how do these stories connect? We have a food miracle a second time. In the same section, Mark 6 through 8, leading up to a climactic moment at the end of chapter 8 that I'll get to at the end of the sermon and John will get to in a few weeks. But in this Mark 6 through 8 section, we've already had a feeding miracle. Are you running out of material, Mark? And then you get the Pharisees, who apparently didn't didn't get the word, you know, about what had just happened and they show up to Jesus demanding a sign. You're kind of meant to chuckle about it. Like, who are these guys? Like, what, what, what do you need? But my favorite po- part by far, because it's most like you and it's most like me, is the blessed disciples who have been with Jesus this whole time. And I know you're like, if I had been around in Jesus' day, I would have trusted, I would have believed. If I'd seen the miracles, I, I, I would have been right there with him. Or maybe you would have been like one of these 12 dudes in a boat complaining that you don't have your snack. And if you have kids or grandkids and you have ever been on any sort of a ride or journey and not had for those children in that moment a snack, you know how just just how feisty these 12 disciples could have been. And yet these three revolve around bread. The bread that feeds 4,000 the bread that was already a sign, and the missing snack loaf of the disciples on the boat. Even though there is here great need and great misunderstanding, Jesus, who says he is the bread of life, proves it. First of all, he perceives their need, not only the need of the crowd, but also the need of the Pharisees and the disciples. And he provides for that need. In his abundance, not in the scarcity of those who can't see it right now, not in the scarcity of the religiosity of the Pharisees, not in the scarcity of the disciples who were so focused on their immediate material needs, abundance. So once more, as Mark always does, he is begging of us, his hearers, the question, are you hungry? What are you hungry for? What have you already tried and tried again that you know doesn't really satisfy? And perhaps most importantly, revealing of one of our deepest human needs, will the Lord Jesus Christ feed you? Will he invite you to his table and will he give you his bread? And so we're in this text, we're all over this text And yet it all points us in our need to Jesus because he sees our hunger and what does he do? He doesn't get mad at the people because they're hungry. He has compassion. And so the heart of this text, I guess it were, the main point is that we can trust 
in the bread of life, to be the bread giver of life, the provider, so that we, in fact, have bread to share in Santa Fe and to the ends of the earth, even when it doesn't seem like there's enough. The question is, will you? And Mark unfolds this question for us across this main point in these three stories with a significant application at the end. The first is simply that we need to see that Jesus feeds. He feeds the crowd. He feeds the people. He meets the need of the hunger of those who follow him. 4,000 people were told, wow, and this is round two. As I said, he's already previously fed the 5,000. In Mark 6, we're told it's 5,000 men, which means it could have been up to 10 or 15,000 people, including women and children. Here it's 4,000 people. The first feeding of the 5,000 is really for the Jews. It takes place in a Jewish area, and it has the language within it that would remind the Jews of Exodus chapter 16. They're waiting for the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Savior. Who is going to come into this place where we are oppressed by Rome and all of their false Roman gods and overthrow these folks? And so in Mark chapter 6, at the feeding of the 5,000, God proves that he will provide not only new manna and bread for heaven, but a new and truer and better Moses, Jesus himself, who stands in the place of the new prophet and priest and king. God has come in Christ, his son, who is both covenant maker and keeper. Jesus is both the just and the justifier to broker a new and better covenant. Jesus is the new and perfect mediator. That means God's plan is being fulfilled in Jesus at the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus stands between the hungry, needy people who can't see past their own eyes and a holy and perfect God and delivers to those people the very thing that they could not conjure up for themselves. And so the Jewish people of God, through the manna of God, through the new Moses of God, are saved. Jesus is the bread of life, the staple of this culture's food. He takes our little, our need, and he makes it into more. And more is precisely what's happening now in the feeding of the 4,000. Again, why the repetition? Well, there is more here. There's a big more. There's a big more that should really matter to you and I unless you are indeed ethnically Jewish. And you may be, but if you're not, and you're probably not, the big more here is that Jesus is doing this miracle now in a Gentile region. Was the manna for Gentiles in Exodus 16? Did the manna go to the dogs? You dogs. Bunch of dirty dog Gentiles sitting in this room, except for like one or two of you. No. So what is going on? Who is this Messiah? Who is this Yeshua, the Savior of the world, who doesn't just bring the bread of heaven and the bread of life for those who are ethnically Jewish, geopolitical, national Israel awaiting their Messiah, but who opens the window of heaven that the man of God may raid down to the whole world. Jesus is bread for Jews and Gentiles. And I mean, I will not tire soon of beating this drum. In a world, because of the fall and because of Babel, where racism will always be an issue, period, because of sin, we see Jesus in this time and place 
doing something that for the average Jew would have been completely radical and unacceptable because their racism against the Gentiles, the dogs, was strong. It would have been a great surprise to all of those who were wondering about this northern Galilean rabbi. Could he be the one that he would do such a thing in such a place to such kinds of people? And yet it proves to us, doesn't it, that the mission of Jesus Christ is a worldwide mission. Not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles, for everybody. Even the strangest people to the ends of the earth, even Santa Fe, New Mexico. And if the mission of Jesus is worldwide, therefore, so is the mission of his church. So Jesus does this miracle in an incredible place. And he does it in an incredible way because the need is real for at least two reasons. And that's why the disciples say, how are you going to do this, man? All right, we're not near any stores. Nobody can run down to Costco really quick and, you know, buy out the rainbow bread. This is a problem. That problem is highlighted, highlighted by the use of the term desolate place. Should draw your attention to the idea of a desert. Or again, back to Exodus 16, the wandering of God's children in the wilderness with nothing to eat lest he provide it. They are in a solitary place. So not only do they feel the need of hunger, but they feel the temptation of being alone. It's one of the greatest tools of the enemy against us. Not only do you feel your need, but so often we're prone to feel alone in it. Now add to this a second thing, and that is that because they are in a Gentile region surrounded by little g-gods and idols, these are a people who are burdened. In so many ways, the Jews have added burdens to themselves in those days to perfect a form of outward religious righteousness that they may earn God's favor. But it was different for the Gentiles and those who lived in Hellenized regions. These ones aren't so much burdened with religiosity toward Yahweh. Instead, they have many gods that they are forced to serve all the time. And these Gentile gods don't bring bread. They demand it. You earn it. You bring it. You put it up on the altar. And if it's enough this time, then I will think about blessing you. I will consider being nice to you. And yet it's never enough. The work never finishes. The bread goes bad. The altar goes dry. There's always more to bring. Into these manifold needs... The desolate place, the temptation of aloneness, and the lies of these idols, Jesus gives bread freely. And he doesn't just give it freely as one who is annoyed. He's not just annoyed with these people. What are you doing? You've, you've heard about me, right? You know that we're going to walk around and I'm going to preach. You know that I like to preach for a long time. They've been going for three days. Three days. So buckle up. He isn't sitting there going, look, I see all these amazing Gentile ladies walking around with these huge mama bags. Why don't you just throw in a couple extra loaves, you know, with, with the band-aids? And he doesn't do that at all. We're, we're told in the text that he has compassion. And, and compassion here is an amazing little Greek word. 
fond of saying, you know, what does this Greek word mean in English? Well, it means compassion, okay? So you're not missing anything. But I just love this word. I'm going to try to pronounce it. I'm going to butcher it. And then you're going to help me. The word is splach nizomai. I want you to repeat after me. Because I can and I stand up here. So don't be a rebellious spirit. Splach nizomai. All right, bringing me back to my old youth group days. Feeling warmed up now. Now, but why? That's weird. Okay. Some of you are like, and we're not coming back here. No. <laughs> why would I have you do that? Because you need to feel that in your gut. Splach nizomai. You can almost imagine like a huge, gnarly, bearded Scottish dude saying that. And you should, because that's what the word means. Moved to the bowels. When you say this word, you're literally supposed to engage your core. Moved to the deepest parts. The bowels, the gut. So here's what this means, folks. When it says that Jesus had compassion, this isn't just some flighty, I'm annoyed, you should have brought food, let's get going, I've got things to do. He is moved to his core, to his gut, with the deepest of affection for these people. Even though they don't have what they need, they don't get an earful from him. They don't get a talking to in a lecture. And how prone we are to see God like that. That you're just one little mistake away. You know, from him, some like, you know, ancient bearded dude in the sky releasing that lightning bolt upon you and the people you love. He's moved in his gut to compassion. And so in the feeding of the 4,000, not only the redemption of Israel is pictured, but the, the true and greater Israel, all of those God would choose from the very ends of the earth to be filled with his Holy Spirit and become temples of his grace. And what are we told? They are satisfied. He provides and they are satisfied. The word here also has the connotation of being stuffed, like Thanksgiving dinner. Stuffed. Like when you go out to an amazing New Mexican restaurant, you can't decide, you get the combo plate, you know you shouldn't, you do anyway, and you already ate a whole thing of chips, and you're stuffed. There's no piece of these folks, there's no nook or cranny with need remaining. There's no place that Jesus can't get to with his bread to provide the nutrients and the life that they need. They are stuffed, so much so that there are even leftovers, a picture of God's kingdom, not scarcity, but abundance. So after this amazing scene, what do we get? Jesus feeds the needy, and then we get the doubt and the demands of the Pharisees. We get the Pharisees and those who have encircled themselves with the crutches of religiosity who demand from the Son of God a sign. And you are meant to chuckle a little bit here. Tee-hee, a sign? Really? Bro? Did you not just see that the guy did the bread from heaven and, you know, nobody can do that? It's impossible? And yet the signs and the miracles that Jesus gives do not meet their expectations of who Jesus should be. Now, before we gang up on the Pharisees and the religious leaders, of which we would have probably been very similar to in the first century, let's remember that in some ways they're doing a good thing. It was incumbent upon those faithful and holy Jews to test the claims of a prophet to see if they were valid. God laid out how to do this in Torah, the fifth book, Deuteronomy chapter 18. 
Because, of course, all kinds of people come around seeking power and pleasure and make false claims. But the word test betrays any benefit of the doubt we might get. The word test here is the same word that Matthew uses in chapter 4 when Jesus is tested or tempted in the garden by the devil. They have not just come here as friends to debate. They have come with an assumption of his invalidity in unbelief and doubt. And isn't it just like the devil to test Jesus His identity in that garden testing in Matthew 4, he's not enough, and the same lies come to you. You're not enough. God's not real. He doesn't really care about you. He doesn't really know you. If he knew everything about you, he wouldn't really love you. He's not really for you. He's not really going to help you ongoing. Try harder. Lies. And sadly, these lies lead to loss. It's their loss. It's their loss. It's their blindness. And so there's a warning from Mark here. When we come to Jesus with our demands, we always miss out on his blessing. So he rebukes their unbelief. He says, you'll have no sign from me. In another text, he says, you'll have the sign of Jonah. Son of man's going to be, you know, as it were, in the belly of the whale for three days, and then he'll rise again. That's all you're going to get. Their hearts were so hard. Not only are they given no sign But we're told that Jesus leaves the Pharisees. And at this moment, sort of a crux in Mark chapter 8, this leaving is more than just a, hey, I'm I'm over this and I'm out of here. This leaving for Jesus is a wiping of a dust off of his feet. And again, a reminder to us, as we'll see with the disciples, to beware. God is patient. He is kind. He is slow to anger. He is long-suffering. But he will not be mocked. And he will not abide hard-heartedness and unbelief forever. And so he leaves these Pharisees to themselves, to the God that they have constructed in their image that makes sense to them. And yet amazingly, Jesus doesn't leave hard-hearted himself. We're told that he too laments. He sighs deeply. He's sad. He's really sad. One scholar puts it this way, the heart of Jesus is heavy here. The Pharisees have manifold signs, but because their hearts are hard, they are closed off to the Savior. As if to remind us of those words from the book of Hebrews, and I say them with great humility because I need this probably more than you all. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If God is coming to you to save you for the first time, or if you're a Christian, to help you in his kindness to lead you to conviction and confession so that you might receive his grace to grow you, to make you thrive and beautiful on earth. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So these two stories set up a a contrast, trust and unbelief. The bread of life and the crumbs of religiosity. Abundance and scarcity. And yet, probably where we find ourselves most comfortable in this text is in the third story, (laughs) where we we see that the disciples need help too, right? Most of y'all here aren't coming to Jesus in the sense of the Pharisees, trying to test him and argue with him. You believe, that you're like that guy in Luke, the tax collector, I believe, but help my unbelief. That's most of us here. (laughs) The disciples have just seen Jesus feed 4,000 souls. And now they're worried about a loaf of bread on a boat. 
They have just seen Jesus miraculously from the heavens bring down fresh hot bread and fish to feed those they could never feed on their own. And now because they're hangry, they're they're worried about where they're going to be satisfied next. It's as if uh, the disciples here are joining with us in the song that we sang earlier, Be Magnified, I Have Made You Too Small. This is the problem. This is why Jesus doesn't engage them about their missing snack, but instead says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. Now, that's weird. You don't put those two together. The Pharisees, by the way, would have been very offended by it. They would have been very triggered by it. You don't, but what in the world do the Pharisees have to do with Herod? Jesus says the leaven of both is the same. For although Herod is pursuing power through political means, the Pharisees are pursuing power through religious means, and they both have the same leaven, which is a worldview of falsity, lies, and blindness. They have the bread of life, the man of God, standing right before them, and they cannot see it. And Jesus says, look, this stuff starts small. This unbelief, these lies... On both sides, self-righteous religiosity and pomp, power, and God-making. On both sides, what starts small can infect the whole. What's interesting here is that coming out of this Gentile region, the disciples are proving that they too can be functionally pagan. That even though these were, you know, pretty much all good Jewish boys following Jesus, their rabbi, they too can be functionally pagan. They too can have their eye centered on, not Christ, but on their immediate finite needs. As one scholar puts it, the disciples we find in Mark are constantly captive to their very own limited frame of reference. Anyone else relate? They go on to say, look, In this episode, it is not the point of Jesus primarily to teach the disciples a deep theological meaning of the feeding of the four and the 5,000, but to remind them that if God can do that, he can certainly take care of 12 bros on a boat. And that is why Jesus offers up to his disciples this prophetic rebuke. Do you see that in the text? He sounds like a prophet. Eyes to see, ears to hear. Do you not remember? Are your hearts hardened? Reminding them to remember their own story of his faithfulness to them. Will you trust me? You were there when I fed the 5,000 and we had 12 left over. All of Israel will be provided for, the 12 tribes. And you were there in the Gentile region when we had seven left over. A number of total completeness in the ancient Near East. The whole world will get to hear the gospel. Will you trust me? to feed you, because that's who I am. I am he. I am that I am. I am the king. And so there is to us here a call as well, a call and a question. Will we understand and will we act as the church? There are in our city, forget the state and the country and the world, all right? Let's focus on Santa Fe. Let's focus on our neighborhoods. There are great needs. There is great need for justice to be done. As the, as the country hands down to us decisions, praise the Lord, we are just beginning as the church. 
Our work has just begun, and we don't get to hobby horse any particular justice issue. Where there are the needy, the broken, the hurting, the widow, the orphan, the least of these, the smallest, the oldest, the youngest, everyone, these are the people that we're called to move toward. If you have bread, if you have bread from God, then you have bread to give. If you've been fed by Jesus, you are to feed for Jesus. John chapter 16 says that in the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It should be the people of God, the Christians of God, who, who, are, who are the quickest to remember that he will overcome the world through his church and the gospel at work in the church. This last week, uh, Caitlin, my wife, gave me a great story from a book she's reading, and it was something I'd never noticed before. That beautiful passage from Matthew chapter 16, where Peter confesses that Yeshua, Jesus, is the Christos, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah of God. It's exactly what happens at the end of Mark chapter 8, and it is the crux of the entirety of Mark's gospel. Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. Now, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you have confessed that I am the Christ, and upon this rock, your profession, not a human being or anything else, but on the profession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ, I will build my church. And what does he say? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, I've read that text a thousand times. I think I probably quoted it, and I've written it down in a bookmark because it's cool. But something stood out to me that I'd never seen before. If the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is at the gates of hell, that means the church of Jesus Christ in humility, in power made perfect in weakness, through the suffering servant, our Savior, who is also the warrior and conqueror of the universe, if the church is at the gates of hell, that means we're on offense. It means we don't hide back in our little holy huddles surrounded by a great moat and a great wall in our Jesus castle, afraid that the stink of the world might rub off on you. Instead, it means we're free. We have been fed. We are an army that has been fed, and we are strong. And again, we don't come in judgment. I didn't come to judge the world, but that the world through me might be saved. We don't come with, you know, words and debates and winning arguments and all these things. We come with the humility of Jesus Christ himself to fall to our feet, to wash feet, to be crucified to the world so that the power of Christ might shine forth in us. But we don't do it cowering in our own castle. We are at the gates of hell on offense. And what will trample the gates? Only that confession, only the gospel, that we're not saved by the religion of the Pharisees and we're not saved by the merit and the righteousness and the hard work of the little g-gods but only through the finished and forever work of Jesus himself. That is what we have, and that is what we have to give. We're all beggars. The only difference is we know where the bread is. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would equip us with the full armor of God, the gospel, the word, faith, truth, and that you would send us out to be in the world and not of it. To be, to be careful in that, Lord, we, we heed your admonition to beware. But beware doesn't mean be full of fear. No, you have fed us and you will feed us. And so, so now, even now, 
As things in our world are are changing, Lord, we want to take that opportunity not to move away, not to hunker down, but to move toward. To move toward even those who might most disagree with us. Because in doing that, Jesus, we follow your example by going to feed the hungry in a Gentile region. Keep us from our self-righteousness, Lord. Keep us from our religious pride, please. There's no power in that. That is... It's just death. The power is in you, Jesus, and you are our life and our life forever. And because we have been so deeply loved, as Ephesians 2 says, because we were dead in our sins and trespasses and you raised us up to new life, how could we not go out and have the same fresh bread on offer for those around us? So would you now bring us to your table? Would you feed us on these truths and promises? Would you remind us of who we most truly are? in you. We are so thankful, Lord Jesus, that you have compassion on the crowd, that you don't send them away or chide them, but instead that you choose to love them and to give to them. Lord, we're so thankful that you do the same for the disciples on the boat. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. And thank you that even in that, you have come by faith, As we trust you, you've come to feed us and to bless us and to give us everything we need. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.